do it well, to do it really well, if you really have standards and you want to make it great rather than just adequate, you need to pay so much ultra-intricate attention to so many different things. The methods and the effects and the positions of every, every finger and every joint of your body and every syllable you say and the pacing and the timing and the, and the visual angles of every one of the people in the audience is just so much. And all of those need to be thought about. All of those need to be considered and refined and tested and optimized to actually make the piece as good as it can be. Hello, I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. This episode of the Lumen Innovation Podcast is brought to you in part by the Bridal Pecan Candy and Gift Company. 20 different flavors of pecans to choose from. Whether you want in-shell, cracked, chocolate, or candied pecans, the Bridal Pecan Candy and Gift Company has you covered. Don't forget about their pecan pies and fudge as well. If you live anywhere in Central Texas, stop by their shop at 2626 Highway 71 West in Cedar Creek. If you live anywhere else, keep in mind that they mail pecans all over the country. Give them a call at 1-800-518-3870 or go to birdall.com. That's B-E-R-D-O-L-L.com. All of the pecan products are grown, prepared, and cooked right there in Cedar Creek by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. Welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox. Our guests today are joining us via phone from Los Angeles, and they are two of the creators behind a very successful Kickstarter project and getting even more successful by the minute. It's called Magic Puzzles, and Magic Puzzles are a set of three new 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzles with original art and a magical surprise at the end. Our guests today are Simon Coronel. Hello, Simon. Hey, how are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. And Jordan Gold. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are here to join us. Right up front, the easy question, the softball. I'll put it up on the tee for you and tell you when to swing. <laughs> what are magic puzzles? Yeah, Jordan, how would you describe it? You're a wordsmith. Uh, so, uh, it is a jigsaw puzzle. Everyone knows how a jigsaw puzzle works um, with a couple uh, twists. The big one is that uh, when you get to the very end, uh, most jigsaw puzzles... You put the last piece in and you're done with the puzzle. Um, with this one, when you get to the end and put that last piece in, it triggers a magic trick uh, and the puzzle does some sort of magic thing that we can't, we have to be a little cagey about it because uh, we want people to experience it without spoiling it. But uh, uh, there's a magical finale to the end of this jigsaw puzzle. So that's the, that's the magic part of the magic puzzles. Um, but then on top of that, uh, really, it's a jigsaw puzzle that's been designed by magicians, and that would be me and Simon and uh, our partners as well. Um, and it means that we've looked, uh, as magicians, we look at mundane objects uh, that most people would look at and think that's just an ordinary thing, right? So I look at a rubber band on the ground, most people say that's a rubber band. It does what we're all familiar with rubber bands doing. But as magicians, we look at things with a different perspective and, and, 
And, you know, we think, oh, maybe I can do a magic trick with this. Maybe there's something deeper here. So we looked at jigsaw puzzles, again, something that uh, up until very recently sort of had this um, uh, air about them that they're, you know, kind of just simple, boring, um, not, not boring, like lots of people like them, but that there's, we looked at it with uh, the idea of, is there something deeper um, that we can do here with the design in every aspect? So from the moment you open the box, there's fun surprises in there all the way down to uh, the art that we picked for the puzzles uh, really goes down to the individual piece level. Um, so as you're solving this and you're spending, you know, many hours putting the puzzle together, the art sort of tells the story and that story works together with the, uh, the magic trick that we've designed into the puzzle. And so uh, the, the hope is that at the end of the experience, you haven't just put a picture back together you've actually gone on a uh, bit of an adventure and uh, learned a bit about this world that the art uh, has, has created inside the puzzle. Very cool. That's a good uh, in-depth answer there. Uh, you got anything more to yeah. add? To that? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty good answer. No, I think, uh, I think an important thing that is worth clarifying as we've been having to do in our increasingly interesting uh, comments section of the Kickstarter is um, that we use all these words like magic and story very, in the very light, loose sense. This is not going to be sort of the vanishing Statue of Liberty. This is going to be a surprising, delightful little, oh, that's clever. This is not going to just vanish and levitate and explode and turn to stars and fireworks. And, um, and in the sense of story, it's not like an actual linear narrative. It's a sort of more like a world with its own sort of little kind of intrinsic story going on. It's not like panel by panel, here's what's going on. Uh, but then when you get to the ending, it still is sort of a kind of a a continuation of sort of the implicit story of what's sort of going on in the world that the puzzle depicts. Okay, yeah, and there's a lot of things in, in both of those answers that we'll hopefully have time to dig into. Uh, let's start off first by by uh, talking about the rest of your team. Uh, I know you guys are, are clearly heavy hitters in your field, but you've also brought along some heavy hitters to help you with this. Talk about some of your teammates on this. Uh, yeah, so we are working with uh, Max Temkin and Ben Hantu, who are two of the founding partners uh, that created the game Cards Against Humanity. Um, and uh, really, magic is kind of what brought us all together um, in an interesting way. Uh, so Simon and I uh, met each other at the Magic Castle in Hollywood. Um, and we became friends, and we started collaborating on, uh, on projects together. And I met Max through, uh, through magic as well, sort of magic and games. Uh, and, and Max had uh, been into magic as a kid and then sort of got back into it recently. And so, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time uh, all hanging out in Los Angeles and in Chicago and working on uh, magic tricks and hanging out at the Magic Castle. This idea of sort of incorporating... Um, magic into a jigsaw puzzle was uh, we, we all, all of us had like some piece of this metaphorical puzzle in our heads and just by hanging out together and, and jamming on different stuff, eventually this idea sort of bubbled up and we all, once it, once it sort of came together, we all went, wait a minute, this is actually pretty cool. Maybe there's, there's something here worth, uh, worth looking into. I, th I think the Kickstarter backers agree with you. They've they really funded it well. Yeah, well, it's it's you know it's been that's been very validating because we've been 
building this idea for a year and nothing has been, uh, nothing like it's ever been done before in, in its category. And so we were excited about the ideas that we were bringing into this. We were excited about all the people we were working with, uh, our, the three of our artists, um, Sarah Beacon, Boyasan, and Felicia Chow are amazing artists that we, we found um, reached out to and um, we got to work with Susan Carre on our, our logo. So it's been, the whole project is an amazing collaboration between um, all of these wonderful artists. Yeah, so you mentioned your artists there, Sarah, Sarah Beacon. Each of them have contributed one piece of art or one puzzle to this. Sarah's contribution was the Happy Isles and then uh, Boya was the Mystic Maze, Felicia the sunny city, each of them are, in some sense, they're kind of a similar artistic style, but distinctly different images. What were some of the, um, I guess, the design requirements you approached those guys with? How did you tell them, hey, don't just do the art you normally do, but also do something different and unique? What What were some of those kind of design requirements to them? Yeah, I can probably feel this, given it was my, my division. So one of the main things that I did on the project was all the actual... Um, kind of core design engineering and BI behind the magical geometry involved in the, the actual ending, which as a consequence uh, gave us some very, very specific and unusual requirements of the art. And again, without spoiling the ending, certain things need to line up in certain ways, certain colors need to match other things on, on the art. But the key thing that really was the initial requirement was Max's vision about what if you, about the fact that jigsaws, when you do them, the art normally just looks great as a piece of art. It doesn't look great when you're looking at little thousand-sized pieces of it. And almost every jigsaw puzzle out there it just grabs a piece of art that looks great on your wall, but then doesn't look great while you're doing pieces of it. So Max's vision was let's get let's find artists, you know, find and support cool independent artists who have this little intricate detailed style with lots of little details in the worlds that they, they paint or draw or do digitally or whatever, find them and commission art from them that will look good as a jigsaw puzzle as you're piecing it together. So it was a combination of that intricate little detail thing and then the complexities of sort of the magical requirements of what their art also had to do. So it was a hell of a task. Yeah, there is a certain Where's Waldo feel to these images. Um, they, Like you say, there's a lot of fine detail in them. There's... I mean, if you just pick away one or two square inches, there's there's ten minutes worth of studying just on that small little part of the image, as opposed to the full big picture. So, it's it is truly a really neat effect. It, it's kind of cool that we got three different artists that still contribute to distinctly different images, but they all come across as though they belong together. They look they look part of a family. So that that was some uh, some good work there on behalf of you telling the artist what to do and and how to kind of guide their creative efforts. I was going to say I think we're. Uh, everyone's familiar with uh, getting into a puzzle and then you get to the part where you're just staring at, you know, a hundred pieces of blue sky or ocean or grass and you just go, ah, this is all this is the same blob. And uh, we were very inspired by, uh, you know, we, I think we all had the, the Where's Waldo books growing up and we're inspired by that, that level of detail. And we, we did think like, what would this look like on the, on the individual piece level to have that, uh, caliber detail. And it was, it was pretty fun at the very beginning talking about it because Simon Bing from Australia didn't have Where's Waldo. He had Where's Wally, which is something <laughs> that we didn't, we didn't realize until we're talking about it. And Simon goes, finally he sort of interjects and goes, what the heck are you guys talking about? I don't, I, what is Waldo? What's a Waldo? And uh, that was a, a fun part of the early process of, of talking about these puzzles. 
we all learned, all of us have learned so much at every stage of this process because, again, it's something that's never really been done before. And then the back and forth with the artists, they would sort of, and we built it into the, the contracts we asked for, there'll be revisions and there'll be, you know, this is not going to be one and done. We're going to have to go back and forth on it. And they would do things and then they would come up with sort of things we'd never even considered that might be better or worse. And we'd go, oh, that's a fascinating approach to that. It's, does that make it better? And so on. like at one stage, to give you an example, I even had a layout. I was in charge of like the art and the, then the die lines. I even went through with a die line overlaid on the digital versions they sent through and basically did a heat map manually of which, how many pieces have something interesting, an interesting detail visible on the piece. And so tried, we tried to get that ratio as high as possible. Obviously, it can't be 100%. That's too much. But that was kind of the level of detail we went to to really make the pieces interesting and engaging to puzzle through. You mentioned uh, die lines there. Someone who's not familiar with puzzles may not know what that is. But the, uh, describe process, the process of making a traditional puzzle and then how you tweak that process for your needs. Yeah, so the way most most cardboard, high-quality cardboard jigsaw puzzles are made is you get the art, you print it on a big piece of cardboard, or, no, or rather you print it on sort of a layer that's stuck onto the, the cardboard. Then you make what is called a die, uh, the, from the term die cut, which is basically, if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle piece, it is normally a squarish shape, and each side has either a protrusion or a, or a little sort of end, enclave that the protrusions fit into. And each of those edges has been cut by a single shaped blade that's been bent into that curved shape. Uh, and then you have, in a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, you'll have a total of about, hang on, I forget the math, it's about three and a half thousand of those blades. That's not the right number, but it's nearly, that are put into this basically giant bladed stamp that's the shape of the entire jigsaw puzzle that is then just pressed down by many tons of force and cuts through the cardboard all in one go and chops out the jigsaw puzzle. So you get one of these things made at vast expense, and then that's put into a machine that just stamps these things out. And so the die line is the, the line pattern of those die-cut blades that actually makes the jigsaw. And because you're trying to make a very specific optical effect with uh, some of the trickery in your puzzle, you had to go to those manufacturers, those die manufacturers, and say, no, no, we, we need something five or ten times better than what you typically make, right? Can you talk a bit about that process? Yeah, completely. Because normally you just you have the art and you stamp it out. And with anyone who's done any kind of graphic design, uh, the concept of what are called bleeds is very familiar, which is that say you want a, an 8.5 by 11 image, you have to make it, say, you know, 9 by 11.5 because then what gets cut out, you can never guarantee perfect alignment between however the thing is cut and how the thing is printed. There's always going to be you know, a tenth of an inch or something of drift just because of the nature of manufacturing. So you have these bleeds where you have more of the image than necessary. So if it's a little bit off, eh, you've still got it. And with most jigs traditional jigsaws, that's fine. The bleed is about an eighth of an inch, quarter of an inch, and if it's off. Whereas because of the nature of the illusion we were trying to create, we had to have certain parts of our, our die line. Uh, first of all, some of them are quite weirdly shaped, which again can't say why for spoilers, but it's fun and it's cool and it's interesting. But we had to have those certain special shapes exactly aligned to certain details in the art because that was part of what makes the actual magical moment work. And so we had to have a lot of back and forth with the factory about how, because their normal jigsaw cutting process uh, doesn't account for that level of precision because it's never been needed before. 
So it was a long, complex process of figuring out how to do that, how to write quality assurance guides to them, how to explain to them what had to be aligned with what, because to us it's sort of obvious because we've worked on the trick, but to them with no context, we need to like make it very, very clear and unambiguous so that no one can be confused by it. So like an example, maybe a visual to try to describe would be like if, if a puzzle has, I don't know, a picture of uh, a highway, you would want the die line to come right down the middle of the yellow striped line in the middle of the road, not uh, an eighth inch off to the left of that. You would need it to be very precisely where you need yeah. it to be. It, you, yeah. you would have to, the die line in, in this metaphor would have to not just hit the, the yellow line, but actually uh, hit the perfect outline of the line. So hit it on both sides exactly. It can't just hit the middle of it and have like uh, a variance on either side. We had to learn a ton about art and manufacturing as well because we had the original concept that we were able to prototype uh, like in my living room and it worked. But there's a uh, being able to translate that to the artists and then translate that to the uh, the manufacturing plant and also bridge the gap between uh, the, the digital art and the physical um, puzzle when it was done, there is, there is that, uh, that space in between the two where uh, at some point a theoretical line becomes an actual uh, cut space in, in, in reality. And, and we had to sort of navigate all of that while, making it work within the parameters that we need to for the, uh, for the magic trick to work as well. Um, so it was, uh, it was a long, it was a long road of just us learning how even any of this works in the first place so that we could understand, uh, our own parameters of reality to work within. So as you're trying to do these, this kind of precision, it makes sense that you go to the manufacturer and say, Hey, we need to, to tweak your process. Um, that sounds totally reasonable for production, but how do you do that kind of precision for a prototype where you don't have those fancy cut dies and are you using a laser cutter or perhaps even an exacto knife? How are you doing that for your initial prototypes? Originally we were, we were prototyping stuff, uh, on, I have a cricket machine and Max has a Glowforge, And between those two, we were doing, um, not prototypes of the puzzle itself, but prototypes of the concept. And then uh, eventually we, we made a prototype of the puzzle with a prototype die. Um, and we made about 100 of those and sent them out to our playtesters. And that uh, did not have the precision that we needed. Um, it, it was close. Uh, it, it wasn't perfect. And we learned a lot through that of just exactly how much more precise it, it needed to be from, from that process. And for clarification, for those who don't know, a cricket machine is basically a, a mechanical blade, precise blade cutting machine, and a Glowforge is a at-home laser cutter. Very good. With you being from Australia, perhaps cricket might mean something else over there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've had to navigate big language barriers between uh, English and Australian. So it's fine. That brings to mind a uh, a few days ago. I sent a text message out to several friends asking if they had any ideas for questions or discussion topics on here. And one of them came back, one of those questions from a fan was, uh, from an international perspective, how does magic, not, not only you as magicians and uh, performers, but, but also as product makers, how do you have to change those for different cultures? Um, you mentioned the one with the Where's Waldo, Where's Wally. 
what other kind of factors did you have to bring in bring into play here because you knew this was probably an international audience doing this? Yeah, so so magic uh, as magicians, um, we we've had a the experience uh, that magic um, it does translate across language barriers uh, as long as you know you don't have a lot of scripting involved, and then scripting would be where you run into issues, obviously, but. Um, if, if you pick up a ball, you put it in your hand, and you make it vanish, almost anybody can understand that. Uh, uh, pretty much everyone can. I mean, even you, there, there's certain, some animals, there's videos if you go on, uh, on YouTube, you can see people doing that, like putting a ball in a cup, vanishing it, or like uh, chimpanzees and for dogs. And they, the, the idea of the persistence of, of objects uh, is, a, is a physical thing that we just understand as living beings in this physical world. Um, so when it comes to physical magic and illusions, um, it, it does translate really well, uh, similar to the way that, that art translates, um, across, uh, languages and cultures, um, which is sort of the really exciting part about working on this, this puzzle is that, um, other than, you know, there's, there's a couple of little, uh, instructions inside the box that could be translated. But other than that, the, the entirety of the product for the most part, um, I, I think crosses most language barriers. Simon, I'm wondering if you can uh, uh, tell the audience here how the playtesting process went. Uh, what did you learn there? How did that go? How did you find playtesters? How many iterations did you do as a result of that? What was that whole process like? Yeah, well, this is one of the many places where the more... I find I learn about any field. And in my life, I mean, I've, I academically, back at university, I just did a, a BA in psychology and a software engineering degree, then went into a completely different field of business strategy consulting as a graduate job. And while I was doing all of that, I was becoming more and more obsessed by magic. And the more I learn about everything, the, the more I discover about all fields are really the same when you get down to the depths of it. It's just people, human beings, trying to figure stuff out and make stuff better and solve problems. And the parallel, one of the things Jordan and I have discovered and worked together on a lot is that magic as a field, as an art, a craft, whatever, is really just creative problem solving. And highly we apply to problems that seem impossible from the outside. And so the playtesting process, also similar to the actual software, the playtesting process of a game or a jigsaw puzzle and the workshopping process of a new magic trick and the like actual software testing process of a computer application are really all basically the same. You've got a thing, you're trying to make it do a thing that it does well, but intrinsically that involves another person experiencing that thing, whether the software, the magic trick or the jigsaw puzzle or anything else. And so you need to find people, you need to make a version that's good enough to test. You need to find people to test it on and then you need to really listen to them and watch them and hear them and see what are they experiencing from this thing? And is that the experience you're hoping they'll have from the thing? And if not, why not? And then what do you have to change to get it closer to that asymptote of the perfect experience you're trying to create? So we got, we always knew we'd have to do this. It's intrinsic. Nothing is good without testing and revisions and review. You mentioned something very kind of uh, important there is that you mentioned actually watching them as they're experiencing this. Uh, so it's not like you just package these up and mail them out to friends across the country and said, mail me back an email a week later to tell me what you found. Mm. Uh, it's probably part of that, but much of it is actually just kind of being the quiet mouse in the corner watching them do it, right? 
Yeah, and we did lots of both. We obviously, to get the kind of numbers we needed for, again, uh, part of the psychology degree is studying statistics and research processes. You need a big enough sample set, otherwise you'll have skewed data. And we obviously couldn't do that for all of them. So we did mail up a bunch and send them out. And then we spent ages, uh, all of us together, working on what questions are we asking them? What's the survey? Because, again, in business and government and policy, if you measure the wrong things, you'll get the wrong results. You'll get the results based on what you're measuring. And so we thought for ages and did lots of revisions on what sort of the, the playtesting survey we're sending out because what do we actually care about in their experience? What questions do we need to ask? What, what's irrelevant? And then as much as possible, we also sat with people and watched them as they did it and did it with them and things like that. So it was a combination of friends, of colleagues, and we wanted a range of expert puzzlers and total non-puzzle people as well because we were going for mass market appeal. Do you remember some of the playtesting survey questions? What, what kind of things were you trying to poke at, poke at there to, to get an understanding of? The original, we went from about, I think, close to a 50-question survey when we first wrote it out, <laughs> um, all the way down to about five questions. And it, it was in, several of those were just... Uh, uh, the, the big one was really just tell us the story of you solving this puzzle um, because we wanted to just hear from start to finish what was it like and how did people feel engaging with the pieces at the beginning, in the middle, at the end, and then at the end of the end, which was the sort of magical finale part. Um, and uh, it, it was really telling to just let people sit back and, and describe it to us not as like a exam form, but really as a chance to just tell tell us their story of uh, of engaging with the pieces. Um, and then there were a couple other like technical questions on there, um, and a, a few of them were, uh, you know, if, if we put this on Kickstarter and had this particular price point, um, would you would you back it and tell your friends? Um, which that was uh, we got overwhelming yes responses to that, which was very helpful. That's definitely a good thing. I went through some of that process, not nearly as uh, formal and fancy as what you're describing, but I went through some of that process with Pazometry when I launched that on Kickstarter in 2014. Uh, my version of doing that was that I would take a puzzle and just go to a local Starbucks or a local park. The Starbucks, as I did two or three times, uh, just kind of showed up as a customer. I'd order some coffee, sat down, start playing with the puzzle as though I'm just an, another customer there. But what I was really doing is kind of drawing in other people to my table, and they would start playing with it and asking questions, and they didn't realize that they were being guinea pigs. But, but I kind of took over a couple Starbucks that way over time. People would kind of gather around and, and see it and start playing with it. And I was doing what you're describing as I was watching their interaction with it, asking them some questions without making it sound like an interview, uh, and kind of asking the same thing. It's like, hey, this is kind of a cool thing I found. How much do you think you'd be willing to pay for it? Those kind of things. So a little bit less formal, but a similar process, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and again, the more you realize the similarities between all different fields have similar kind of, of challenges and needs. We were also able to isolate certain aspects of the puzzle itself um, because the the thousand piece puzzle takes many hours to put it together. It's a, it's a whole process, um, but we had certain little magical elements that we were testing out that we would make um, these micro versions of, like a little. 50 piece puzzle or some of them were even like four piece puzzles just to uh we'd carry them around in our pockets and when, whenever we'd meet anybody and talk to them for more than a minute we'd say yeah here here's the thing 
we take out, you know, four pieces of, of wood that we laser cut. And we say, here, put this together and, and sort of watch their experience. And, and we were able to, to micro-test um, these sort of distilled elements of the puzzle that later we put back into the thousand-piece version eventually. Did you have to sign any, uh, or get get the playtester to sign any NDAs, non-disclosure agreements or anything? Were you kind of concerned that maybe they would uh, steal your idea and run with it before you got a chance to launch? <laughs> we um, we went through our extended network of uh, friends and family for the playtesters, and um, we, were, we were very fortunate because we were working with uh, Max, who has released games before, so he had already been through this process and so he, he had a, a good list of people to reach out to on his half of just uh, uh, people that were excited to, to try a new thing from him um, and uh, we as far as the the protection goes you know we ask people please you know this is a secret project don't post it online or anything like that but um, the there, there's sort of two sides to that. One is that we were confident in how complicated the manufacturing and artistic process was that we knew anyone that wanted to copy us was already going to be six months behind if they started today. Um, and the other, the other side of it was that um, we just kind of had to trust that, you know, we, we were working on it and, and getting it out there and, we were pretty confident because it's such a strange new uh, and complicated mechanic altogether that uh, it's not the type of thing that somebody else was, was going to be independently working on. I mean, we had to really chisel this idea out in, in every aspect from manufacturing to art to Simon's crazy geometry and it was also building on ideas that, you know, Simon had been working on for a long time before. So uh, with this particular one, it wasn't one of those things that you see it and you go, oh, that's a great idea. I could, I could get this up on Kickstarter in a week if, if I wanted to. How many different iterations did you go through? Uh, and probably the answer is different depending on the particular mechanic or part of the project. But can you give the listeners some idea of how many iterations you went from prototype to final version? So in terms of the actual physical puzzles that existed as thousands of these puzzles, we did one We did one prototype that we hired Sarah to make the art for because we realized, okay, we've got to do an actual puzzle properly. So we hired her to make art for that. And that was the only full prototype that got made. We made, again, about, I think about 100 of those. We paid to sort of put money in um, to have those done. And then from there, we took all the huge amounts of interesting, useful, complex feedback from that and then just kind of hired Sarah again uh, and the other two artists to go ahead and do the final production versions. And so even though like only one full prototype was done, there were like dozens, hundreds, I couldn't even tell you of iterations on all the components of the die line pattern layout. Each artist did at least, I mean, I have the archives somewhere sent through at least seven or eight different revisions as we kept sort of tweaking and looking at them. And then the initial concepts of like how the magic geometry works, again, that was just dozens and dozens of iterations and tests and everything else. So kind of one main prototype loop and then a hundred little ones on all the steps in between. Yeah, it sounds like the secret I hear from a lot of the guests on this show is to basically never stop iterating. You know, just, just make yeah. one, learn, yeah, yeah. Make, make another one that's slightly different, make one learn and yeah. never stop iterating.
We we interviewed uh, Sarah for one of our Kickstarter updates. Um, so that's that's on the page. But one of the things she said, which we were uh, which surprised us and it was sort of delightful to hear, is that Sarah did our original prototype, and we had so many changes, uh, but we liked her art so much that we wanted to. Uh, she, we asked her to redo the entire Happy Islands again from scratch. And we were sort of nervous to go back there and say, Ooh, can you do this entire thing again? And, uh, she said that as an artist, um, she, there's always this feeling that when you get to the end of something, you almost wish you had a chance to do it all over because you've learned so much through the process. But by the time you get to the end, it's like, you have to just let it go and really sit and realize it's done. And it's, I, I get to move on. And with this project, she got a chance to go back and actually redo it all. So the Happy Islands that's available on Kickstarter um, is is her getting that second chance to really go back and redo all the things that that she'd want to. Um, so that's I know that we feel we always feel that way about everything we work on, and uh, occasionally I guess uh, you, you get the chance to go back and do the version two. I'm sure that's the, much the same that you guys do as professional magicians. The, the first time you try a trick, it's it's probably not nearly as good or perhaps not good at all, and then iterate it a few times or a few dozen times or a few hundred times, and before you know it, it's on stage. Definitely a few hundred is about the right range. One more thing on design before we move on to uh, some other things is uh, you've got another kind of neat trick up your sleeve with um, dust-free puzzles. So we've all opened the, the plastic bag <laughs> puzzles and been, you know, we get a lap full of dust. How do you guys solve that problem? So this was, this was something that we learned about in the process of, uh, going into designing a puzzle. We, we started by looking at a lot of puzzles, trying to figure out, all right, what, what sort of the spectrum of quality that exists in the, the world of puzzles already and uh, what we discovered along the way is that puzzle dust is a thing and nobody likes it. And so uh, we went on a journey of trying to figure out how to get rid of it. And really it just comes down to uh, cheaper puzzles have puzzle dust because uh, it's an inevitable part of manufacturing. You can't manufacture it without dust because you're cutting cardboard. Um, the only way to get rid of it is you have to uh, go in. It's it, it's under quality control of just taking the pieces and sifting them and cleaning them before packaging them um, to make sure that they they don't have that extra residue that comes off. And so obviously that takes time and money to pay somebody to do it the the plant. And uh, so it, it was a decision of talking to our manufacturers and saying this is really important to us that. Uh, that our puzzles don't have this thing that nobody likes. And uh, so we just, uh, along with the quality control of getting uh, all of the other things lined up that we had to, uh, we made sure that uh, Puzzle Dust was on our top list of priorities as well. Yeah, that, that kind of struck me as a cool feature, not because it's earth-changing or, you know, it's not a huge, big, major Nobel Prize kind of a thing, but it is a cool thing because... It is a problem that needs to be solved that probably no one else really thought about solving. Uh, it's been staring us in the face ever since puzzles have been around, but probably very few manufacturers have said, hey, let's make this a priority. Let's go solve this. And and that, that's kind of neat that yeah. there's there's problems out there that we look at every day and we don't even realize they're problems. So we just kind of take it for granted. And then someone stops and says, hey, let's solve this little thing that will make people's lives uh, incrementally better. So it's definitely a good thing. And 
It was, uh, I was kind of, I kind of smiled a bit when I read that, that someone saw that as a problem and decided to just go solve it. One of the things that really came up in this collaboration, because collaboration between, we are both primarily at least magicians, or, you know, not now anymore because pandemics and there's very few magic gigs, but um, with us magicians and then Max and Ben game designers and then Sarah Boyer and Felicia artists and everything else is one thing that, as we got to know Max, that he kept noticing as he got into magic as an outsider was that one thing's magic to do it well, to do it really well. If you really have standards and you want to make it great rather than just adequate, you need to pay so much ultra intricate attention to so many different things, the methods and the effects and the positions of every, every finger and every joint of your body and every syllable you say and the pacing and the timing and the, and the visual angles of every one of the people in the audience. It's just so much. And all of those need to be thought about. All of those need to be considered and refined and tested and optimized to actually make the piece as good as it can be. And Max, Max's observation that he now says a lot is realizing that magic is one of the few fields where people are willing, not just willing, but it's part of it, to spend 90% more effort on something to make it just 1% better. And it's not the only field where that's true, but it's one of the few where that's kind of just part of it. And so one of the things we realized we were bringing to this was that kind of mindset and attitude to the jigsaw, the field of jigsaw puzzles and everything else we've touched. We've done a lot of sort of concept designing for, again, Jordan's work with Exploding Kittens and with advertising with promo and lots of other things, bringing that incredibly rigorous, demanding sort of quality point of view to all the aspects of something, not just the obvious ones. Let's break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Puzzometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from and all are for sale at Puzzometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Puzzometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Luminovation podcast where we shine a light on innovation. Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Luminovation podcast on our webpage, luminovation.com. That's L-U-M innovation.com, luminovation.com. We are also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. And you're at 1.358978 million. That's one million three hundred fifty-eight thousand nine hundred and seventy-eight dollars. So you're you're quickly approaching a million and a half bucks on that, and it's going up every few seconds. I see more and more people back in it. That's uh, that's got to be exciting. From uh, just just I guess just being human, watching a web page click up to you know million dollars or more. Talk about that process of being a part of a project that has just kind of gone kind of gone ridiculous. <laughs> this is a good thing, right? Talk about that. How is that, just from an emotional perspective, how is that to be a part of that? So this has been a really strange uh, journey because we've been working on this for a year and part of it has been 
Uh, a big part of it, since Max is in Chicago, has been traveling back and forth to Chicago. And I know, and Tommy can speak about his experience because he's also been traveling to Australia and all over the world. And in the meantime, while we were working on this, we we were all still going to the conventions that we had booked and doing our our magic work that we had, had booked over the year. And um, and there was this. The, the, the duality between releasing, finally releasing this project we're so excited about and, and seeing it um, from the very beginning get a lot of um, momentum. Uh, we, I mean, we hit funding within uh, under two hours of launching, which was just tremendously exciting. Um, but, but also, you know, still being in this new weird world that we're in where we're all stuck at home. I mean, Simon and I have been, we went from, seeing each other all the time working on this to having to do it remotely, even though we, we you know, live like 15 minutes from each other. Um, so it's, it's been, uh, it, very, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. It's, it's very, it's very exciting, but at the same time, you know, all of our magician friends are struggling right now because all of their shows are gone as well. Simon, I was wondering, what is your perspective on that? How have, how have you kind of, I don't know, thought of this one and a half million dollar project right in front of you within a handful of days, a couple of weeks? I, the one thing I know is I absolutely have not worked that out yet. It's still a bit of a weird dreamlike blur, and I don't. It, it, it's weird on. I mean, it's amazing, obviously, right? Let's get that out of the way. It's obviously incredible. Holy crap! And one one thing that's weird is that number. I don't really know what that number means. It like I know it's a great number, and so that's how many people are buying puzzles. It's incredible, but obviously, the overwhelming majority of that goes to the Kickstarter percentage, and then the cost of shipping and the cost of making the puzzles. And somewhere in there, there is absolutely profit, which is great. And then that goes into the Magic Puzzle Company, which is the whole point of this project is not that we're just making these puzzles and we're done. It's our hope from the beginning, a year ago, when we just began working on the idea, was that we could make a company that puts innovative, cool twists on jigsaw puzzles and maybe other puzzle games down the track and release new innovative ideas each year because it's something we know people want, we know the world wants, we know it's in demand we might be able to bring something better to it and that we can make this a company that we work for and it provides an income and we can hopefully do that rather than doing what can be frequently just exhausting, grinding, soul-destroying gigs because it's that old saying that you find a job you love and you know if you can make what, earn money doing what you love, you're great. And honestly, we've mostly found the opposite is true. If you have this thing you love, magic and the performance of it and the craft of it and the art of it and the sharing of it, but when it becomes a job, what ends up happening is you start hating the thing you love because now you're having to do it in these incredibly messed up, compromised ways that are just often really frustrating uh, as opposed to the, you're not doing the thing you love anymore. You're doing a twisted version of the thing you did love. And so we were kind of thinking maybe we could make some jigsaw puzzles and that would be a good business to get going and great. And now that it's just exploding, it's um, just, we had no idea it would do this well. I'm sort of having kind of existential whiplash. So we were people, eight days ago, we were people who were still happy we had our jobs and were doing these gigs, but they were still, like, I was absolutely maybe a year away from a proper nervous breakdown huh. from all just the endless, it's like being a traveling salesman, just doing these gigs and going from cruise ship to cruise ship or venue to venue and just having no, person, no social life because you're never in the place where you're living and 
I could feel that I wasn't going to be able to keep it going. And so this possibility came up. Maybe it's a way to find another way to have an income stream. During that answer, you had another backer come in. You've, you're now at 24,534 <laughs> backers. 20, wow. Almost 25,000 people believe in the project you're doing. It's definitely the, the most exciting part about the whole uh, experience of the project so far has been uh, that there, there's a huge shift between eight days ago where Simon and I had to think about, we're always thinking forward to, okay, well, we got paid today for something we did today, but what's coming tomorrow and what's coming in the next day? And we, having to line up work uh, for the foreseeable future. And when it, once this, uh, when we saw the, the trajectory of this, we sort of realized, wow, this thing that we were working on and we're so passionate about is going to be the thing that we get to keep working on and that will get to hopefully keep supporting us for a while now so that we can really sort of, there, there's a lot more work to be done now, um, but there is yeah. sort of a, a existential relaxation of, ah, I don't have to worry as much about what I'm going to be doing for work in the future um, because I don't have to keep looking for my next gig. Now we can just look for our next version of this project of what's, what's version two going to look like and, and how, what's version one going to expand into. Um, and, and that's been really rewarding. Um, and to just have that, uh, that moment of, ah, oh, this, we, we spent all this time, believing in a thing and building a thing. And finally we kind of get to enjoy that it exists and it gets to exist um, now that we've built it. Yeah, that's, that's definitely neat. The Kickstarter projects I've been a part of as well. I, I've had five or, I don't know, four or five, six, I don't remember, uh, way smaller than this. Uh, none of them have been anywhere close to this, but Pazometry was funded at about twenty one dollars or $22,000. Jordan, you mentioned this kind of almost, you can relax a little bit now, but I think... From my experience, the actual days during the Kickstarter project were anything but relaxing. What is your day-to-day -day life like? What are what are the things that you're doing related to the project day -to -day during the project? Yeah. So so yeah so uh, uh, I we have been anything but relaxed. Um, but it, we there's sort of the the anxiety of what I will be doing is replaced with the. Um, busyness of, oh, I know what I have to do. Uh, I just now have to do it. Um, so for me, I have uh, got my TV up on the wall as an ex, uh, external monitor, and that just has the Kickstarter up on I'm looking at it right now. It's had the Kickstarter up on the wall the whole time. So basically, my, my entire living room just is constantly displaying the, the page, and I'm walking by it and looking at it. And uh, we, we wake up in the morning, and we... Uh, pretty much start thinking about everything relating to puzzles and magic. And we've been doing these daily updates um, where we really just want to put, keep sending magic to people and give them a little peek into not like the, the boring part of like manufacturing the stuff and like the logistics of how to do it. Cause you know, it, we're, we're figuring that out, but really just into how, how these came to be like we're looking at magic puzzles. What is that? What does that mean? What does a year of work look like? And um, really it, it looks like a couple of magicians tinkering around with ideas and just continually going down this design rabbit hole. Um, so we've been putting out 
videos of, of magic that we have been working on, uh, magic that inspired Simon and I to become friends in the first place, um, magic by friends of ours who inspired us along the way. One of those one of those updates I remember seeing was update number six. And, and before I get on to the details of that one, it, it is truly cool. And it's actually, I look forward to the email every day. The, you guys do an update almost every day, which is way more frequent than most Kickstarter projects. Most, most do one or maybe two per week, but you're doing them almost every day. Maybe you've missed a day here and there, but it's basically every day. But one of them kind of, in my mind, got me laughing and kind of stole the show is update number six with your friend Frank Olivier. Uh, <laughs> uh, so if you're listening at home pull up the Kickstarter for this even if you're hearing it a few weeks from now after the project has ended um, the updates you're right they, they feature a short video sometimes a long video with some of your friends and fellow magicians but update 6 just kind of kind of kind of did the trick for me what have you guys described what 6 was about <laughs> so uh, I, I met Frank when I was 13 years old and he was at a party doing tricks with cards and rubber bands. And I, I looked, he was wearing like this purple zoot suit and Frank's this incredible juggler. He, he's like a world renowned juggler that is also, uh, has incredible, he's just good at everything and he's great at, he does magic and he does like, he's the, uh, a modern day vaudevillian. And, uh, I looked up at him and I, I just thought, man, this is the coolest guy I've ever met. And I want to, I want to be more like, more like Frank when I grow up. And, uh, and he really inspired me to sort of go on this magical journey of, uh, of following that as a, as a, uh, career path. Um, and so I, I reached, I was talking to Frank as this thing launched and he was, you know, really proud and really excited about how it was going. And we, we kind of realized a few days, before it, it hit a million dollars that it was going to, um, cause you know, I think we had like, uh, 27 days left to go and we're like 850 or $900,000. And I, I sort of said, Hey Frank, I think we're going to hit a million dollars. And if, and when we do that, I, I think it might be kind of cool if there's something you can do to sort of, uh, make a fun video. And he, he has this one trick that, uh, that I love where he, puts his head in a box and he twists the box with like a ratchet and his, his head twists around. So I, I just said, Hey, maybe you could just do that quick trick. It's like a six second trick and just say, Hey, you know, uh, I'm so proud of Jordan. He had a million. And Frank, Frank said, yeah, I'll come up with something. And what he <laughs> said was, you know, the video that's up there now, which is almost three minutes of him, like riding unicycle and nailing a basketball shot. And then, uh, like, doing this crazy stunt where he slides across a bunch of balls on this lawn, and then he gets on a six-foot-tall unicycle, and he plays a flaming guitar with uh, an American flag and, like, a money sign that catches on fire, and it's just, it's total chaos, and it's all one shot. And he sent that, and he goes, uh, he goes, what do you think about this? I hope, I hope that works. And I go, Frank, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. I think that video itself could go viral. That just that I, I, that, I think it almost <laughs> deserves to be on YouTube by itself. It uh, was such is almost like a human Rube Goldberg Goldberg machine. It was really kind of remarkable. Uh, it's really neat. I got a kick out of that. Frank is an amazing person. I mean, his his energy that that I got to see him perform as a kid. 
his energy was so infectious and delightful and wonderful that it, it like I'm still feeling the effects of that momentum of, uh, of his performance. And, uh, the, that video is just him, you know, being him, but also just really being proud of, uh, of, of this project. It's, it's really neat to get that email every, every day. Uh, one thing I've, I w- would kind of be remiss if I didn't ask this question is that we're right now in the middle of this whole COVID-19 thing where everyone's staying at home. And over the last couple of months or so, since about March when this whole thing started and the world exploded, um, everyone has been doing puzzles. So when I told a friend the other day that I was doing this show with you guys, they looked at the Kickstarter and says, oh, well, that's kind of cool. They're kind of, you know, they launched a puzzle Kickstarter project right at the time when everyone's really excited about puzzles. But but I kind of knew better. <laughs> I knew that a big project like, like, project like this doesn't get launched in a matter of a week or two. This is something you've been thinking about for a long time. Is it purely total 100% coincidence that you're launching right now when puzzles were are popular? Or did you kind of tweak the start date to fit this? Talk about some of the timing of that. This was absolutely the timeline that we were hoping to launch on from from the beginning. Um, and we... What, what sort of happened is a lot of things... We happened to be working on something that when everything changed, it, it still fit within the new this new weird world that we have going on right now. Um, so we got lucky that our project didn't get changed by the change of the world. But we also, uh, the, the fact that everyone right now is talking about jigsaw puzzles seemingly overnight is actually not a surprise to us because when we started working on this project a year ago, we would be talking to a lot of our friends and family and we would talk to anybody we could about jigsaw puzzles just to get data about do people like jigsaw puzzles? What do they like about them? And what we sort of discovered is that the jigsaw puzzlers were everywhere, but they weren't, uh, they weren't out and rejoicing in their love of jigsaw puzzles. They were sort of keeping it to themselves. And I think that a year ago, uh, there was a, a lot of people that really loved doing jigsaw puzzles that just weren't talking about it. And as soon as uh, all of a sudden now we're inside... And you see a lot of, there's certain trends that are kicking up, like baking bread and doing these other things. I think that uh, it's it's become not just okay, but like really hip to be in the jigsaw puzzles. So I don't think that all of a sudden you have all these people doing them that weren't doing them before. I think that you have people that liked doing them that now uh, get to celebrate, hey, jigsaw puzzles are cool and everyone's talking about them. Guess what? I've got a bunch of jigsaw puzzles because I think all these people that are, that popped up online and they're posting their stuff. It's not like they went out and bought a thousand jigsaw puzzles for their library in a week either. They already had those. It's just that, you know, now they're, now it's kind of fun and cool to, to be out and talking about them. It has been the absolute most absurd coincidence basically. And if anything, we're actually behind schedule, uh, which again, completely accidentally, I think obviously worked in our favor. We were, Wait, there was, it was such a complex development process and it really has taken a whole year because we kept discovering new challenges and new issues we had to fix and new things. Like originally, we didn't really have a set date for when we were going to launch. We were kind of idly back in about sort of July last year when we were working on it thinking maybe we could get these out for Christmas. That would be amazing. 
And then that was just not at all feasible. There was there was just no way we were ready for that schedule. So we went, all right, it's cool. We'll miss Christmas. That's all right. But, you know, let's just keep working. And then, yeah, the fact that when we were finally within a month or two of going, all right, I think we're ready. We've got this figured out. All the stuff is worked on. And it was when the, all the COVID news started to appear. And we realized, you know, oh, my God, this is, it's almost absurdly, I don't know, yeah, just the timing was, has been ridiculous. It's my, the joke I've been telling people is, uh, yeah, if you want business advice, I'd say, number one, get a time machine, uh, go back in time about a year and begin working on an innovative jigsaw puzzle company so that you're ready for when the world is suddenly demanding jigsaw puzzles. Because that's kind of, it looks like we could see the future that perfectly and we is a complete freak coincidence. Yeah, I, I know firsthand that it takes a lot of time to to work behind the scenes before you even go to the Kickstarter page to start launching your project. It takes you know weeks even yeah. for a small project to really get ready for it and do it right. And with a team as big as yours, I'm sure you've you've spent countless hours even before anyone heard of of the magic puzzles. You mentioned um, ongoing work. I, I don't remember one of you guys perhaps. Jordan mentioned, someone mentioned earlier about there may be more of these coming on. This is called Series 1 of the Magic Puzzle Company Puzzles. Uh, how soon could uh, Series 2 or 3 or more come out? It's uh, a great question. We don't know the answer yet. We're already working on future series in the background. I mean, not very much right now because right now all our work is focused on just like get, handling this Kickstarter, handling the inbound attention, working on making sure it can be fulfilled and delivered. And It's all looking good, but it's taking all our effort to, to keep on it. But yeah, there are definitely few, we have all kinds of future plans in our research and development division, which is still just us when we're actually doing that. A future series of cool different ideas that innovate on the jigsaw puzzle concept. Yeah, never never stop innovating. You got to keep thinking about the the next thing. For people out there listening that yeah. want to start a Kickstarter project of their own, and perhaps I mean there there's tons of success to be had in five thousand dollar Kickstarter projects or ten thousand or you know relatively small numbers. There's a lot of people out there that can run those kind of small projects as a one-person team. Uh, and there's bound to be some of the tricks you guys have learned for these big projects that can apply to the small ones. What are some of the things you've done about getting the word out and all the social media campaigns and all of those things that, that may apply regardless of the size? What, how do you, you know, you're doing a podcast now that may help, uh, help get the word out. What are some other things you're doing to help spread the word and get some momentum behind this thing? I, I think that the, the, best advice to start off with is, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people look at the Kickstarters, uh, not just our page, but all, a lot of projects and they, they get excited about the, the Kickstarter itself and the numbers on the Kickstarter and the idea of having a Kickstarter. And, uh, I think that a, a big part, I mean, you know, we, we had a big push early on of, of reaching out to, to people that we know and trying to spread it organically through our uh, our extended network. But but also, we worked really hard on the, the product and communicating what it is. And I think that um, our focus on just really making what we what we believed in and making something uh, from from the beginning that we thought through every little detail of has made the sharing part, uh, pretty easy. Um, because when we've noticed that when people see the, the project, they're pretty excited about it and they are excited to share it with other people. Are there specific marketing things you've done? Uh, you know, press releases or talking to blogs, talking to, 
you know, maybe um, Twitter and Facebook accounts that have a lot of followers, those kind of things. What, what are some of the specific business plan things you've done to help spread the word? Um, well, we definitely, uh, we, we have some other friends that have done Kickstarters before and we've reached out to them, um, to see if they're interested in, um, helping spread to, to their audiences as well. And, um, so it's, uh, I mean, Kickstarter is, it, what's neat about it is Kickstarter itself is its own community. Um, and we, we've also, you know, we've, done a lot of research in the last year looking into puzzle communities, which, you know, a year ago, I think there was like three people on all of Instagram that were, you know, quote unquote puzzle influencers. And now there's hundreds and hundreds of uh, puzzle accounts and people solving puzzles. And so reaching out to uh, whatever it is that you're building, there's more than likely a community or several communities uh, online about it. And, um, uh, tapping into those and getting them excited about it is, is always helpful as well. Um, for, for example, we, Simon and I, uh, have a magic community and we reached out to them and they've been really receptive because this is, it is a jigsaw puzzle, but it's also, uh, made by magicians and it has magic involved. And so they've been excited about, um, not just, uh, backing it, but also sharing it as well. Yeah, that's uh, so. The, a lot of those things are you know, things that an individual, a, a one-person Kickstarter team, can go out and do, and you get a lot of s- social media traction, which is huge for Kickstarter. And I know behind the scenes, from the project owner's perspective, you get a lot of—it's not a lot of tools, but you get some insight into where the f- your backers are coming from. Are they coming from Facebook? Are they coming from external links? Are they coming from a custom link you made? Uh, you can get a percentage of how many of them are just from people randomly wandering through the Kickstarter website versus from external links. Are you guys tracking those things from day to day, or or you just kind of let that just kind of fall to the wayside for now? Kind of a combination. We're keeping an eye on it. We're we're really figuring this out day day by day as it goes, as it continues to get bigger than we've ever dealt with. So we're, we're learning very very rapidly in these like in these sixteen hour days that we're pulling. I know that feeling. I've done that. <laughs> I, I understand. And, and it is overwhelming at times. I mean, I, I remember when I was doing the posometry Kickstarter that I, I taped a big piece of basically cardboard paper to my desk. And every day I would, I would go through a long to-do list of things to do, you know, post on Twitter, post on Facebook, check this, check that. And every night I would throw that mm-hmm. list away and tape another one on my desk. The biggest thing for me is just, again, having never done anything like this, particularly on this scale before, is I've had to learn just to take a 10 minute break every nine to 10 hours. Just that was like the first, the first few days I just could like, I thought if I, if I step away, something will catch fire, something horrible will happen. Just because the bigger the number gets, obviously the more amazing it is and the more terrifying it is by like, posting these back updates every day has been terrifying. I, for some of the things I've done, I've done some scary stuff in my life, but I think this is up there. of just the sheer scale, the number of people like the sense of responsibility there's all these people who have been so who've invested in this and believed in it. I'm like, oh my god, we want to make sure everyone's happy, and realizing you can't make everyone happy. There's no way to do that. And I was, oh god, it is hard. I tr- I tried to I tried to reply to every com every person that emailed me during the project, and it and for me as a one person team on Pazometry, when it became fun, uh, successful at twenty one or twenty two thousand dollars, 
it was hard for me to keep on the ball of replying to every email that I got or every every yeah. comment. But that's a kind of a thing you have to do to stay on top of, to make the community know that you're plugged in, that you're you've got some skin in the game, that you're trying to do you do your best, and and that does yeah. actually help a lot. It's, it it is hard work during these. It, some people may think you just lay back and watch the money roll in. Well, that's part of it. But the other part of it is you're working your tail off for you know hours and hours every day. It's it's definitely mm-hmm. hard work. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a complete marathon for sure. The I, I went from uh, before we hit the launch button. I was cooking all sorts of. I was cooking every meal, and uh, as soon as we hit launch, uh, we ordered uh, just a ton, like a whole week's worth of Thai food, basically, just so that I didn't have to think about food anymore. I, was like, I just want to open the fridge and grab something and eat it. Um, cause there's just, there isn't time, not even, not time to cook. There just isn't time to even think about food. It's just, oh yeah, I need to, I should feed myself today. That's right. <laughs> it's uh, it now just crossed uh, $1.36 million, one, $1,360,000 with 24,554 backers. It'll take me a day or two to get this posted. So the number will surely be higher by the time the listeners hear it. Uh, but man, what a what a cool success! You guys are, as we've mentioned several times, you guys are professional magicians. But of course, now in this whole COVID nineteen thing, probably much of your your day to day jobs or your previous day to day job is is not a thing you can do now. How have you guys, as magicians, regardless of the puzzle business, how have you guys, as magicians, kind of survived through this thing? I assume you're not doing many shows or, or no shows at all. How does that work for you guys now? Oh, yeah, that was eliminated completely. Just the second lockdown went in place, that career was just gone for the foreseeable future. And a lot of people have been pivoting hard, and the innovation and everything is brilliant. There's increasing demand for online shows, Zoom shows, things like that, for both sort of family entertainment and corporate entertainment. And I was sort of going, oh, God, I'm going to have to try and figure this out. It's a completely different skill set. But then I had sort of – I was in the weirdest place. I mean, when the – speaking of absurdly – kind of fortuitous timing when the whole pandemic lockdown hit in California, I had just got back from two and a half months of intense, exhausting travel. And it's like, travel's like chocolate cake. It's delicious. Unless you're having it every meal, every day, nonstop. And then eventually you get sick of that damn chocolate cake. And you just go, can I just skip the chocolate cake? And I'm like, nope, more chocolate cake. Oh God. And that was what it was like. I'd just been traveling so much. I just, it was, I just wanted, I wanted an apple. Simon also travels, uh, Simon was traveling internationally uh, on a crazy schedule to the point that every every single time we got on a puzzle call, sometimes on a, a day apart, uh, we would have to say, Simon, where are you? And it would be, you know, literally anywhere in the world because he was, you just never know, like, where in the world is Simon? And, uh, I remember at one point in particular, the answer was I, I literally didn't even know. I was in an airport somewhere on a connecting flight. I actually didn't even know what country I was in. It had been just been so crazy. I just stopped even keeping track. So I was like, I don't know, some airport in some country. Couldn't even, literally wasn't even sure. I had to go and look at the ticket to find out. Yeah, that's amazing. That's like you said, you kind of be careful what you ask for. Uh, places like uh, Disney yeah. and some of the other vacation resorts have started at least making it possible to book uh, stays into the future. Have you guys started to look at your booking book to or your calendar to see, uh, have you started booking gigs yet? So the, uh, not yet. Uh, yeah, when, when it all, we had, we had, uh, 
actually Simon and I, you know, with Max and a couple other magicians, had planned a multi uh, 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 a, a long road trip, basically, uh, of like convention after convention, and then we're going to do these these shows along the way. We had this big, great road trip magic show extravaganza thing planned. That all got canceled. And then um, as we were getting the Kickstarter ready to launch, I actually got a, a few calls for some, um, some Zoom gigs uh, because there's, uh, obviously there's a lot of people have, my, I had my birthday in quarantine, as did my mom and a lot of our friends. There's a lot of uh, people celebrating events uh, under lockdown. And there's also, uh, I got some calls from some corporate clients who had to uh, furlough a lot of their employees and wanted to, you know, do, do something special for them. Um, so there, there were some opportunities of, of putting some digital shows together. And there are some, there's, a, there are magic tricks that work um, through Zoom live that, that you can actually do a whole show. And so I had, Simon and I had started talking about the possibilities of, of working on a show together and, and trying to figure out where, uh, what that might look like. And then um, once we sort of realized the success of the, the Kickstarter uh, project, we, we now are, this, this is our job moving forward. I mean, we, we fully intend to continue innovating um, with the magic puzzle company and, and, uh, doing exciting other things, um, trying to see what else we can we can do that uh, that will be the next version of this as well. Yeah, I think yeah. and that's more than anything else. There, there's yeah. a, a restaurant here near nearby where I know the manager, and I was just talking to him a couple weeks ago. And of course, this whole thing has been devastating for for tons of businesses. But I was telling him that there's going to be some restaurant in the area, and this is going to apply to anywhere in the country, who's going to figure out how to do delivery and pickup service remarkably well. And then they'll realize, Hey, wait, we don't need our brick and mortar dining room, which is an expensive building to maintain. We can totally pivot and be creative and find a way to do a, a new, better, different, more creative delivery service. So as much devastation as there is in small businesses, there's going to be a few people out there that figure out a whole new way to do what they're doing or to pivot into something completely different. So, so it is going to be kind of cool a year from now to look back and see what were some of the creative solutions to this. And, and you guys are describing that from a performer's perspective that more business goes online. But I, I think that applies to almost any business. Someone that's kind of smart and creative will figure out a different way to do it. Yeah, well, what's interesting yeah. about that from just a magician's perspective is uh, before we were limited to only gigs that we could actually physically show up to. And we were limited by how many we could physically get to in a day. I mean, you can, it takes most of the time is getting ready, putting all your props together, driving to where you have to go and, or in Simon's case, flying, you know, around the world. But now all of a sudden, um, I mean, it's, there is that loss of like, there's something beautiful about doing magic live and interacting with people uh, in in person. Um, but there, there also is new opportunity in that uh, there, there's all these shows happening around the country or, or events happening around the country that um, there's potentially uh, a new place to sort of perform. So it's, it's, it's a big change. Um, and, Part of 
I mean, like Simon said earlier, part of being a magician is creatively, uh, creative problem solving. So this is just a new problem with new constraints and it's, um, it takes a minute to sort of take some time to, to readjust and, and, and look at it from a new perspective. But there, as you said, there are new perspectives to, to find as well. Biggest thing, this is sort of a more fleshed out response to your question earlier about, because we were thinking a year back, man, it would be great to have something that was, we would making money from that meant we could ease up on this sort of burnout inducing kind of life schedule. And so we were already thinking about sort of at least a soft pivot with this jigsaw puzzle thing way back. And we didn't know if it was going to work. We thought it's worth trying. This is a potential opportunity. And now with the combination, with the one-two punch of COVID and then the success of this Kickstarter, like the biggest, you know, I have no idea. I really, a tiny minority of that big number actually ends up in our pockets. But what's exciting about it to me is what that means is it looks like if something doesn't go wrong, that this company has legs. We can, there's a market for this. There's people who are appreciating this. We can keep doing this and we've enjoyed the process. It's been really exciting and creatively nourishing and cool people have been involved and that I can probably afford healthcare now, I think. That's really, I'm sort of deliberately not looking at the number too hard because those are things I care about. Like, okay, good. There, there, there is still, a, I still have a career of some kind with this company and I'm not going to just go completely bankrupt in the immediate future, which is what I would have been worrying about otherwise. One of the most exciting parts about this whole project is that uh, being a magician, we like doing magic for people because of the feeling of magic we get to to give to people. And uh, that is really hard to scale because it means we have to be physically present and performing every single time we uh, are hired for magic and, and are doing magic. And this project sort of really proved to us that we could take the ideas and design uh, aspects of creating a trick and creating a moment of magic and put that all in a box that somebody can do without us being physically there and put that into a mainstream product such that um, now now this is sort of proven to us that that's possible and we're excited to continue to explore creating magic uh, that we can put inside a box and send out and that we don't have to uh, physically show up for every single time. Yeah, um, and, while, and while it won't hit, while there's no way to hit the same level of kind of raw astonishment that you can with a live magic trick, it's still able to hit so many of the other sort of secondary notes of surprise, delight, narrative, experience, subversion that is what magic is also about in addition to that core ingredient of, of astonishment and amazement. And it definitely gets a little bit of that in there. Scalability there is, is a, I mean, we could do a whole show just on, on that, of how do you take the uh, final product of Kickstarter, then what do you do afterwards? And I was, while, while putting my notes together for this show, I was really surprised that Max's project, the, the Cards Against Humanity, which is arguably one of the most successful games in the last <laughs> five or six years, right, or five or ten years, it's been remarkably yeah. successful. But its Kickstarter wasn't over- overwhelmingly successful. It was only a $15,000 Kickstarter, which which is, I mean, that's not chump change. That's, that's a very successful project. But the millions of, of copies of that game that have gone out and the huge big fan base that has developed after the Kickstarter, uh, that that is an intriguing story, too. So, 
So yeah, you guys are funded at $1.3 million currently, and when this is all done, you could ship those and, and never do it again, or you could scale up to be, who knows, a really, really big company, right? So, so the things that have to occur after Kickstarter is a whole other game and a whole other business plan. The interesting thing about the, the Cards Against Humanity Kickstarters, because we, we had a similar moment where we both, uh, right before we launched this, we looked at Max's profile and we said, oh, let's go back and there's the Cards one. And, uh, and it, it, compared to modern Kickstarters, you go, yeah, oh, that's, oh, wow. And compared, especially compared to how successful the game became. But you have to look at it through the lens of, like, it, that was one of the first Kickstarter projects uh, ever. And it, it also was uh, one of the most successful Kickstarter projects of its time. So it's kind of hard to look at what's, I mean, Kickstarter's, projects in general have just gotten so much bigger over the years um, and the, the community has grown so much. So the, from a, from a modern perspective, it doesn't feel that big, but um, the impact that it had at the time was, was pretty big. And, and it's also a good lesson that, you know, it's really not just about the, the 30 days, however long the project goes, that's just the beginning of all of this. And that's the way that we're looking at it, which is that, yeah, you know, they, uh, Cards Against Humanity had a, had a great Kickstarter that helped them out, but it was that momentum that launched them into, I think, coming up on 10 years of, of being a very popular, successful game. So we're, we're just hoping that um, as exciting as all of this is right now, we're also excited and looking forward to what this means for the next year and the next year and, and everything moving forward. Simon, anything more to add on there? Yeah. And much like you asked about earlier, we are because of that, because we now know, you know, it took us a year to get these made ready to manufacture and to launch. And um, it'll take us less the second time because now we, we've learned a lot of transferable skills in that year. But yeah, we're already working on ideas for series two and three in the background in between dealing with sort of all the, everything that it's taking to run this campaign and uh, excited about the future. It's also just, it's such a, one of the things that I always lamented about the magic career path is how solitary it is. It's still very collaborative. You work with other people, you, you session and workshop with other people, but most of the times your show is just you on your own. And a lot of the most fun shows I've ever done in Magic have been group shows, collaborative shows. I've worked on a bunch of duo projects. Jordan and I have done shows together. And they're so much more fun than that solo performer thing. And this is even more fun because there's so many people involved in this, in the business side, working with the artists who have all been great to work with. Uh, I'm just really excited about the collaborations that it's going to lead to and has the potential to lead to going forward. Yeah, it's definitely it's like I say I, I've I've seen firsthand how how fun these things can be even with my relatively small project that it's just a f adrenaline rush it's it's a fun process and then when the the campaign ends you think oh I can take a breath but no the work gets even harder afterwards when it's making the product mailing and shipping it out and, and it's it's tons of fun but you you're you're right it's uh it's a lot of work it's a lot of effort but it's 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 fun hard work. Well, and yeah, and to your point, I think I think it's a it's worth thinking about whatever it is that you want to launch and build. You know, uh, hopefully, it's something that you really actually want to launch and build. Um, because uh, you know, for this, we, we we've been so excited about this uh, these puzzles for a year. So what this success means is that we get to keep being excited about them. 
And if we were just uh, ready to push these out the door and say goodbye forever, then it's like, wow, we have to keep working on these instead of we get to keep working on these. Um, and so I, I feel really fortunate that like my time is that it's been so fun to collaborate with everyone and the, the product, the process, the, uh, every, every aspect of it has been so, um, engaging and enjoyable that, uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to keep moving forward on it. Yeah. And it's super gratifying for the, for the amount of times in my life, there have been so many times I have spent a year or so or thereabouts working really hard on something, usually for me, a show or working towards a competition or, I mean, there was the thing I was, I was on, I had the privilege of being on Penn and Telefoulos a couple of years back, like working on the, the routine I did on that for so much time, so much preparation and passion and blood and sweat and tears to put into it. And then most of the other thing, everything else I've worked on before now was good it went okay. It didn't, wasn't a failure, but it didn't go anywhere. It was just like, eh, this is good. Sold some tickets and then went nowhere. And this is the first time I've ever spent a year working on something that I've cared about and been passionate about. And it's actually going somewhere and looks like it might go somewhere. And it's such a profoundly, I don't know, like relieving, validating, whatever. I don't know what the word is. It's a complex cocktail of emotions, but it's, it's nice. Good yeah, you, you kind of drilled into something there that's actually important for people that want to launch Kickstarters, or uh, at least I think it is. I've got a handful of ideas that potentially could be Kickstarterable, but I don't. I haven't really pulled the trigger on them because I don't quite. I don't know what the word is. I don't quite love them yet. Right? They're good projects, but and I like them, but they're mm-hmm. not quite there at the level of enthusiasm that says I want to spend six months of my life just go digging into this. And and so yeah. you've you've got to. They've got to get to that next level of, of good to make them worth that effort. At the very beginning of, uh, of this whole project, we were still uh, in the ideation phase of working on what all the final thing would be. And, and uh, Max said something like, we, this is great. We've got ideas out till 2026, but now we have to focus on one and actually build it. And, and coming up with ideas was really fun and, 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 uh, certainly got lots of them, but just taking one of those ideas and really, uh, polishing it and working it to be what it was, was, that was one year for one idea. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, it's, Kickstarter isn't just about getting an idea and throwing it up there and watching the, the numbers tick up. It really is like, figure out what, what idea do you believe in that you want to see in the world that you don't already. And, um, and that, that, that's more than a full-time job in our experience is just working on the one. so far. Yeah. One of the most profoundly useful things I've been exposed to throughout this journey was something way back about eight, nine months, or 10 months ago, I don't know, early in the process of this idea, what was something Max Pointed, pointed us to and said, go go read this post. It's a guy called Derek Sivers, who is a sort of serial entrepreneur, has done many things. And he has a little post, you can Google it, uh, called, the titled Ideas Are Just a Multiplier of Execution. And in a nutshell, he's basically, you know, all the time people are so excited about their ideas. They want me to sign an NDA just to hear their idea. And to me, an idea has, its only value is in multiplying the value of your execution. 
what makes money, what makes things happen, what gets things done in the world, whether it's creative, business, humanitarian, personal, is execution, getting it done. And that's so much harder than having a great idea. If you take even an okay idea and execute it really well, that's going to produce something great. The execution that really matters. The idea is important, but only as a multiplier of the execution. And so again, uh, 10 months ago, we had to go, all right, we're stopping the ideas. We're just going to now execute this one idea. And that took 10 months of blood, sweat, and tears to execute one idea well enough to actually be a viable product. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more that you're right. The, the, the idea is, is not the magic ingredient. It is the hard work. And you guys have done that with a team of four of you guys collaborating, plus three artists, plus a handful of people, uh, you know. So for 10 months of just, you know, with a, that's a fairly large team and it takes definitely a lot of effort. But we have already uh, made this the uh, the world's longest Lumen Innovation podcast. So uh, <laughs> at the, uh, which is totally good. I've got, I literally have a whole nother page of discussion topics, but we're clearly not going to be able to get to those. But, but how about in a month or two when you guys get, Look, kind of we can, we can do a sequel. It'll be cool. Yeah. I think that'd be a great idea. Um, so in the meantime, I want all of my listeners to go out to Kickstarter and check out this project. I, I would definitely won't necessarily make you back them, but at least check it out, and then you can choose to click or not. But but I can tell you right now that I backed you guys, uh, I don't know, a few days ago, and then a few days after that, I thought, uh-huh, these guys would be good to have on the podcast. So so I backed you, and then a few days later, I tried to get you on the show, and I'm glad this worked out. But you're at $1,360,425 with 24,562 backers. It'll be interesting to see how much bigger those numbers are in a few weeks. Uh, I guess you've got 19 days to go. So uh, to, this is totally good. I've, I've learned a lot. It's been fun. You guys are, are clearly good entertainers. Uh, can you, Other than the Kickstarter website, which people can go to Kickstarter and look for Magic Puzzles, um, and actually just Google Magic Puzzles Kickstarter. You'll find it really quick. Uh, what are some other social media contacts and contact information for each of you two? How can people get a hold of you and hopefully even book you for shows in the next few weeks or months? You know, uh, book book our other friends who are, who don't have a Kickstarter. They they're just as good. They need it more than we do. Uh, look for magicians and other variety entertainers offering online shows. Book book them, not us. If you're interested in in uh, booking and supporting magicians right now, we, we have some friends who are putting some amazing shows together, and uh, you can reach out to us at uh, Magic Puzzle Co. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, we are more than happy to send their info your way. And yeah, some of them are doing private show bookings. Some of them are selling tickets to digital shows. Um, we're attending a lot of them, and, and we're excited to. Uh, we've got some coming up tomorrow, I think. So Magic and, Puzzle um, Co. Yeah. Yeah. Magic Puzzle Co. On Magic Puzzle Magic Co. On everything, yeah. Twitter and Instagram. On whatever you have open. And um, I'm I'm similarly I'm think whatever app you have open. I'm Things by Simon. Uh, if you want to say hi directly. Things by Simon. All right, listeners, get out there and, and uh, follow the, follow these guys. Reach out to them, uh, say hi, and if you're uh, if you've got a few bucks to spare, these are actually are fairly priced. They're not. They're what is it? Twenty bucks per puzzle? Is that about right? Am I remembering correctly? Yep. Yeah, uh, twenty bucks for one, or plus shipping, or fifty dollars for the set of three. Yeah, for series I, one. I backed the set of three, so I'm going to have some puzzles to do this fall. Uh, totally good. I'm glad you guys were on the show. Uh, Simon Coronel and Jordan Gold, two of the co-creators of Magic Puzzles on Kickstarter. Thanks for uh, for being on the show here, guys. And uh, I think we should definitely reach out in a in a month or two and and see how you guys are doing with um, 
with the puzzle shipping and the company growth. Uh, what do you think? No worries. It's been, been a pleasure. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. After we yeah, get thanks up, for having us, and we're uh, we're excited to, uh, to 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 come back because we we've got 19 days left to go on the Kickstarter. So who knows? What's gonna <laughs> oh God. I need to take a break. I'm gonna, we'll come back and see if I've had a nervous breakdown yet in the next month or two. <laughs> Very good. Stay stay on the line after we stop the show here. I'm, uh, I'll get your contact information and I'll actually mail you guys out some puzzometry puzzles so you can still have puzzle fun, but it'd be, oh, cool. they, they won't be magic puzzles. They'll just be the cool, clear acrylic puzzles that puzzometry fans already like. You know... You know, what's, you know what's super ironic as well is before this all started, when Max first went, you know, I've got this idea. I think if we did jigsaw puzzles but actually cared about them and made good art, that would sell. <laughs> that was where it all began. Then we went, wait, you could also apply this magic geometry we'd worked on. Was at the time, I was sort of very neutral positive about jigsaw puzzles. I, I'd never bought one, but if there's one around, I'd do it. That's fun. I'd like them. Yeah, well, yeah I never really thought much about them. And now, over the last year, I've done, I don't even know how many, is research and studying, get things like puzzle dust and puzzle cardboard and die line shapes and everything. And now that I have this heap of jigsaw puzzles I've accumulated for research, I'm now finding they're good to just wind down from this Kickstarter craziness. <laughs> so I'm now doing way more jigsaw puzzles than ever as actually the way to decompress, which they often are to so many people who find them a good sort of mental health thing. Yeah, definitely Just some calming, flow-inducing, all the good stuff. Yeah, good mellow music on the background and doing a puzzle at a desk. That's a pretty yeah. good way to uh, kind of chill and relax. So Jordan Gold and Simon Coronel, some of the co-creators of Magic Puzzles on Kickstarter. Thanks for being on the show, guys. And thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live.